So I love um, people that do things that they should not be able to do. Like Rudy, you know, like that guy should not be play football at a D1 school, right? But he did. My favorite guy though, I'm gonna tell you about him, his name is Cliff Young. There's no one to me that demonstrates what you should not do better than Cliff Young. He is the most unlikely leader. So if you don't know his story, I'm gonna tell you it. The year was 1983. The running world's eyes were on Australia because they had at that time the most grueling ultra marathon. It was 875 kilometers or 550 miles. Think about that. You're gonna run 550 miles. It's insane, right? So big corporate sponsors are there, Nike, Reebok, Adidas, like it's there. They have their runners outfitted in the best 1983 tech, right? Big calculator watch with shorts that are way too short, kind of that technology. <laughs> and everyone's got their corporate sponsors, their t- everything, except for one guy. He's wearing rubber boots, vinyl overalls, and a flannel shirt. And they're like, bro, this is the ultra marathon. The goat roping contest is down the road, bro. He's like, no, I'm here to run. In fact, somebody snapped a picture of Cliff Young at that event, this is him. Does he look like an ultra marathoner, right? So they're like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, I'm here to run. They're like, where's your support team? He said, for years, I would go out on my family's 2,000 acre farm and my job was to gather in all the sheep and it would sometimes take me three days to get them in and I never needed a support team. They're like, well, how old are you? Through a toothless grin, he said, I'm 61 years of age. They're like, you're too old. Everyone's half your age. You can't run. Guess what his answer was? Watch me. And watch him, they did, because when the gun went off and all the pros took off running, Cliff Young did not. He didn't actually run. He shuffled, that's all he did. He just kind of shuffled along. And they're laughing at him thinking, are we getting punked here? What is the deal here? Well, everybody knew in 1983 that to run an ultra marathon, you would run for 18 hours straight, rest for six hours, and repeat that until you finish the ultra marathon. But no one bothered telling that to Cliff. So when all the other runners with their massive lead on Cliff Young, when they went to sleep that night, Cliff Young did not. He kept running. So in the morning, all the reporters are like, what are you doing, man? What what are you doing? He goes, I'm gonna run till I'm done. You can't do that. Nobody can run five days straight. You can't do it. Guess what he said? Watch me. And watch him, they did. And every night when the runners went to sleep, the pros went to sleep, Cliff Young began to edge into their lead until on the fifth night, he passed them all and shattered the previous record by nine hours. Cliff Young. Now guess what? Everybody when they run an ultra marathon, run straight through. Everybody, or not everybody, most people, they don't run anymore, they do the Cliff Young shuffle because the the way that Cliff Young shuffled, they found is the most efficient way to move a body forward. What an unlikely leader, love him. So we're in a point in Peter where he shifts. He's been talking about suffering and he shifts to leadership. 
And every person in here, you lead in some way. As a parent, as a grandparent, as a worker, as a boss, as an employee, as a Christian in this community, you are leading in some way, you're a leader, and all of us need to learn how to lead well. So here's what Peter does. Peter talked about suffering, tons of suffering, tons of difficulty, and then almost like he shifts into now, hey, lead. Now, why is that? Because it's in crisis that you need leaders more than at any other time. It's when the world is saying, I don't know what to do, what's going on, this is crazy, that we're looking for people to stand up and to lead. That's why he shifts. He knows it's in crisis, it's in difficulty that leaders become really important. So I'm reading right now uh, The Darkest Hour, which is about Winston Churchill. And what's amazing is the first part of that book is all about his failures. And then it was World War II that Winston Churchill stood up and probably because of a lot of his failures, actually put in, in him the metal to lead England out of their worst, darkest hour in history. It made him, right? Because it's in crisis that you need leaders. So Peter's like, yeah, there's all this suffering. So leaders stand up. And he uses the term elder, but it's not like the formal word that we'd use today for like the office of elder. Because in verse four, he contrasts it, excuse me, verse five, he contrasts it with, hey, you that are younger, so elder here is just somebody that's mature, somebody that knows how to lead. Stand up and lead. So here's what he does. He gives us the who, the what, the why, and the how of leadership. And each of you, I don't care what you do, you need these that we need during crisis, which we're in right now, godly leaders that will stand up and do these things. So let's do it. Number one, who? The who of leadership. Look at verse one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. The who? Be a human. Peter here talks about, hey, I'm a fellow elder. I'm not the Pope. I'm a mature believer, right? And I'm a witness of the suffering of Christ. Do you guys remember where Peter was at when Jesus was suffering? Where was Peter at when Jesus was dying? He was denying, he was running, he was hiding, he was telling people he didn't know who Jesus was, right? So Peter is bringing up a very painful memory in his past. He's like, I'm a fellow elder with you and a human blow it case. That's what he's telling us. I'm not the Pope, I'm not perfect, I blew it. He's reminding us of that. I made a pledge almost 15 years ago when Edgewater started that as a pastor, I was gonna be raw and real. That I wasn't gonna get up here and play the superhero and tell you about all my successes and how great I am. Because the last time I tried to walk on water, I got wet. I'm not a superhero. I can't take off this flannel and there's not a big S there. So I just decided I'm gonna be real. And if you know this, um, the illustrations that I use here are not about my successes. They're about my failures, right? Like Peter, hey, yeah, I'm a blow case. Other churches, I think, maybe they don't get that because I went and taught at a church a while back 
And it was a brilliant message. I'm telling you, it was a brilliant message. <laughs> and one of my points was, it was kind of a side point, was about this guy that I had been involved in seeing him come to faith, right? And then I'd kind of walk with him and I'd gave him terrible advice. And because of my terrible advice, and probably his own choices as well. He went back to drinking a case of beer a day and smoking whatever would burn, right? So I told that. After the service, people lined up. And they didn't say, oh man, I loved your sermon and the presentation was amazing. Your, your rhyming points were just epic. You know what they said? I love the fact that you're a blow case because that gives me hope. If God is still using you as a human blow case, maybe, maybe God would use me too. See, great leaders understand that. They share not their successes. It's okay to share your successes, but they also share their failures. I blew it. I, I, I was a witness to the suffering of Christ while I was denying and running and hiding. That's what I was doing. Think about uh, David, Old Testament. Who are the greatest leaders in the Old Testament? Probably King David and Moses, right? David is the benchmark for every other king. Did David blow it? Oh my goodness. Here's what's amazing to me about David. He wrote songs about his own personal failure. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and Psalm 55 are about how he personally blew it majorly. He writes songs about it. And these were not songs that he would tuck in a journal underneath his couch or hide underneath his bed. These were songs that would be sung in church. Could you imagine that? The praise leader comes up here and is like, hey, got a new song I'd like to teach you guys today. It's about my personal failure. By the way, thanks for bailing me out from jail last night. I'm glad I can come up here and do this today. Let's sing. You'd be like, what in the world? Right? That's authenticity. That's honesty. That's, we're human and we blew it. Right? As a leader, be human. Parents, I think one of the most important things a parent can learn is how to apologize to their children. I tell my kids, and I'm joking with them, but I tell them this. I said, all five of you have had a different dad, right? Not biologically, but I have changed, right? My oldest daughter, she's almost 20. I was a very different dad for Carissa than I am for Myron. I've told my wife she should write a book, how to raise your fifth like your first, because you just get better at it, right? Like, Carissa, my oldest, she was an experiment. I'm like, my goodness, I blew it with you. I can do better, let's have another one, right? That's why, every, that's why families have another kid. They're like, I can do better, let's start over. <laughs> and that's okay, you're human, right? Right, my kids will be like, well, you didn't treat me that way. Right, I'm growing, I'm changing. Hopefully I'm getting better. Let me get better. As a leader of your family, say sorry, apologize, right? You can grow. Number one, good leaders are human. They're human. They tell about their humanness, not their perfectness. Number two, the what? What do you do as a leader? You feed. Going on, verse two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. What do shepherds do? They lead their sheep to green pastures so they can eat. If you have an older translation, a King James, New King James, they actually translate this word feed, feed the flock. Our job as leaders, whatever we're leading with our kids in our community, wherever it is, is to feed 
the people around us. What happens when people eat food? Especially kids. They grow, right? They get bigger. The goal of good leadership is, I want to feed you, I want to bring you to green pastures, I want to give you what I would want at your state so that you grow and you get bigger and better than me. And eventually, I work myself out of a job. That's what good leaders do. Very different from a worldly model of leadership. So there was a book written, it was written in 1998. It was an international bestseller and it was called the 48 rules for power. Machiavellian, crazy book. Took the world by storm. Let me just give you a couple of the chapters to see how this is how the world views power. Look at this, chapter two. The heading is this. Never trust friends. Learn how to use enemies. If you have no enemies, find a way to make them. Sounds like Satan. <laughs> chapter three or chapter six, court attention at all costs. Chapter seven, get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. You go, that's my boss, thank you very much. <laughs> chapter 11, learn to keep people dependent on you. Never teach them enough so that they can do without you. And then finally, chapter 14, pose as a friend, work as a spy. It's now referred to as the psychopath Bible. And what's crazy is a lot of leaders and companies or whatever, they cut their teeth on this book because it was the bestseller when they were coming up. Godly leadership is not that way at all. It's the opposite. It's not, I want you to make you dependent or domineering on you. No, I want to feed you so that you grow and get bigger than me. And part of how you do this is we have to learn as leaders to transition from authority to this thing called influence. Influence is much better than authority. So let me try to explain it like this. My wife has no authority at Edgewater. She doesn't sit on boards. She doesn't meet with people. She, I mean, she meets with people. She doesn't have authority. Like people don't have to do what she says. She has no authority, but does she have influence on Edgewater? Oh, 100%, why? Because she talks to me, she talks to you, she's kind, she's gracious, she has that. So she has this influence because of who she is. Maybe a better example, parents. As a parent, you begin with authority. Simply because compared to your children, you are a giant, right? So you are huge and they are small and so they have to listen to you. So you can use fear and loud voice and intimidation as authority to get your kids to do what they are supposed to do. But here's this crazy thing about kids, they grow. Here's the crazy thing about adults, we're shrinking. <laughs> if you don't believe me and you're about 50, go get a checkup, right? I did, I was 5'11 and a half, I'm now 5'10 and a half, right? So you're gonna be like, you go to the checkup, you're like, I'm 5'8, I thought I was 6'2. Well, you're shrinking, right? The only thing that keeps growing on a human is guess what? your nose and your ears. So in the end, we all look like a circus freak. If God doesn't have a sense of humor, I, that's it right there, okay? So you're shrinking, your kids are growing. At some point, they get bigger than you. So your authority, if it has not transferred to influence, you have nothing on your kids. 
Good parents, they understand this. And they begin to transition from authority because I'm bigger than you to influencing your kids, to help them to grow, to learn. That's what you want. Like the goal of a parent, I think, should be at 16 or 17, your son, your daughter is living in your home as an adult. They are making the decisions, good or bad, inside your home so that you can help them and influence them and that the messes can be when they're 16 or 17 in your home. Like that's your goal, that you are free now. Because sometimes I think what happens is some parents are so tight and so authoritative that when their kids turn 18, what do they do? Party and freak out. The Torah is gone, all the rules are gone, I'm doing what I want now because the transition wasn't healthy. So our transition should be, man, I wanna give more responsibility, more opportunity for you to make decisions that maybe I don't agree with, but you can also walk through the mess with them during those times. So authority needs to turn into influence, right? We're feeding and wanting to raise up those that are around us. Still influencing, still helping them, but not domineering them, not trying to keep them down, not 48 rules of power. Edgewater. So for 14 years, I taught Wednesday nights and most of Sundays. That's okay. But eventually, I'm gonna, you know, my brain is gonna stop working. I can already feel my brain stopping to work, right? Like trying to figure out the name of one of my children is now a chore. Myron, Elijah, you here, right? I can already feel that happening. It's just gonna get worse. It's not gonna get better. I don't care how much gudaguba root I eat and how much kale I consume. Eventually, the brain is going to fail me. At that point, if there has not been the willed raising up of other people, uh-oh, what's gonna happen to Edgewater? And so a decision was made a year ago. Okay, Wednesday night, this load's gonna be shared. And we're gonna use this as an opportunity to let other people start teaching and raise them up so that they can begin to share this thing right? Or the fire. So we had evacuees here and I could have come in and been like, hey, don't worry. I am a fire marshal. I'll take care of this whole thing and, and been on the news and all that. But we don't have that kind of culture here. Instead, the people that should rose up and they took it. The Carries, the Estens, the Esters, the Carleys, the Anthonys, the Patricias. They just said, hey, we'll take this thing. So when I got up here on the week that we didn't have church and we, we live streamed it because they were here in our facility, I got up and I taught and I met one of them back in the back and he said, you're the pastor? <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah. He's like, I thought it was that other dude. I'm like, well, it probably should be, but it's me right now. Why? Because I like that, right? It's not, it's not, hey, I'm domineering and I'm trying to maintain power. It's, Let's feed the people around us so they grow up and they take their positions as future kings and queens of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. You're feeding. How do I give other people the opportunity to step up and do what God has them to do? So we feed as leaders. Number three, how? How do you do it? Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. How do you lead? Example. It's example. Not you go do this thing. It's, let me show you how. 
So I have a list of these, these things that I think are important for me and my culture, and I'm always adding to them. I just added one recently, and it's this. Lead, don't manage. I've never met a person that says, man, I'd love to be managed. But I've met a lot of people that say, I'd love to be led. And when we lead, we're supposed to be lead like Jesus. And Jesus said this to his disciples. What do you say to him? Hey, go do this thing. No, Jesus over and over to his disciples. When he called them, he said, follow me. Come follow me. Come watch how I do this. Watch my compassion. Watch how I heal. Watch how I teach. Watch how I treat people. Come follow me, right? And great leaders do the same thing. They say, come follow me, you and me together. Jesus didn't stay in his place of privilege. He got dirty, he got dirty in life. In fact, 2 Corinthians says, chapter five, verse 20, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteous of God. He got dirty. He said, watch me. To me, this is where the rubber meets the road. It's how you lead, it's your example. And I always think, if you wanna know the character of a leader, see how he treats somebody that can do nothing for him. Not the guy that's gonna give him the promotion or give him some power or give him some asset. The person that you know, that person can do nothing for them. How does he treat that person? Because great leaders are givers, not takers. They're saying, how can I give to this? How can I, how can I lead by example, right? It's not getting people to do the stuff you don't want to do, like vacuum or whatever. Jesus' leadership is, I'll do the thing nobody wants to do. I'll wash the disciples' feet when nobody else wants to do it. Here's what's amazing to me. So I follow leadership. It's one of my like, things that I'm always following. So in 1998, it was 48 rules of power, crazy Machiavellian psychopath. That's the leader. In the last five years, there's been a massive shift in what is being taught now. It's no longer 48 rules of power. Now it's called responsible leadership or servant leadership. Read a Simon Sinek book. It's all about servant leadership, right? What the Bible has been teaching for 2000 years. Now today, if you went to Harvard and got your MBA, they would teach you servant leadership because they're finding that's actually the best way to lead. This power thing, this dominary thing, it doesn't work very good. This is the way. And I'll tell you, being an example is much harder. It's much easier to tell people how to do things than to actually do it. It's much harder. It's much easier to preach a message on Sunday than it is to live it out on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. But here's what I know. If I want my kids to love Jesus, I have to love Jesus. If I want my kids to love the Bible, I have to love the Bible. If I want my kids to pray, if I want my kids to love church, I have to love church. It's my example that matters, not my words. Much, much more difficult. But great leaders, good leaders, lead by example. Then lastly, the motive, the why. And Peter here gives us a bunch of bad motives and then good motives. Here are the bad motives. Here's a bad motive for leading. Number one, compulsion. This means force or fear or the favor of the church is this, guilt. That you can be guilted into doing th stuff that you should not do. And there's the big three. You can always guilt Christians by these big three. Read your Bible, pray, and serve, right? 
Because all of us feel like, man, I could read my Bible more. Man, I could pray more. Man, I could serve more. So it's easy to use those three to guilt, and I'll show you how. So let's say we got a lot of kids, and I say we need help in the kids' ministry. So I pull out Psalm 78, which is one generation needs to serve the next generation, that this generation, the older generation, needs to pour into the young generation. And I say, listen, we need you guys to be pouring into our kids. We need you to volunteer in the kids' wing. If you don't, man, what kind of generation is to be raised up? You're gonna leave here and get mugged for your quad shop. So get down there, right? So somebody hears it and they're like, well, I don't really like kids, but I kind of feel guilty about this. Okay, fine. So you go and volunteer. But kids are like dogs. They can smell fear and guilt. So they just attack, man. They just attack you. And they're kicking you and biting you and peeing on you and pooping on you and spitting on you. And you're like, ah, right? Finally, the service is over and the kids are checking out. And the one kid that peed on you and puked on you you're trying to help him out, and the dad's like, hey, Jimmy, come here. And he doesn't even wait to be checked out. He just shoves you aside, jumps over the fence, and walks off. You're like, all right, see you next week at a different church, I hope. And you go home, and because you haven't had kids in your home for 20 years and got the immunity from being slobbered on for 20 years, you get sick. So next time to come around to volunteer, guess what you're thinking? Yeah, you know, I, I just don't think I'm gonna do it. And so you call in sick. And then you're like, well, you know, Justin is such a nice guy and I feel like I've disappointed him. So, you know what? I'm just gonna live stream church from now on. Guilting, what I've seen, short-term gain, long-term loss. Compulsion never works. So that's where he says, don't, don't guilt people. Don't compulse them into this. That's not how you lead. That's bad. Number two, don't do it for money. If you're leading for money, if I'm up here for money, if you're volunteering because you think this will be good for business, Peter would just say, don't do that. Don't do that. And then don't lead for power. If you're doing it because you want a position or a title, Peter would say, don't do that. And if you look at the failure of leaders, it's usually in one of these three areas. Usually this is where leaders fail. But there's a good side. Here's why you lead, here's how you lead, here's the motives. Willingly, eagerly for an eternal crown. That's good. We have an elder that says this over and over. I'll never forget it. He says, never underestimate the heart of a volunteer. The volunteer that says, I want to be there. I'm eager to be there. He goes, that's what moves the world, that heart. That's what Peter's saying. Those kind of leaders that are willing and eager, understanding it's an eternal reward that I'm working for. That's good motives. Like I love verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know why I'm up here? Because one day, I pray that I hear these words from my king. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That eternal reward from him. You know why I wanna raise my kids well? Yes, I want them to do well. Yes, I want them to flourish. But I also wanna hear because they've been entrusted to me by Jesus. Hey, Matt, dad, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. That's a motivation that never fails. Paul would say, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. That's why. I have a saying, and I've said it before. <laughs> I'm more afraid of Jesus than I am of being the pastor of a small church because that's what keeps me healthy. Because if you have that fear, then oh, I better not talk about that or I better not mention that subject or uh-oh, they won't like that. No. I, I healthily am more afraid of Jesus than I am of being the pastor of a small church if that's what I'm called to do. And that keeps me grounded, that it's the crown from him that I want, not the applause of people. And that keeps you in the right motive. Like this is good leadership. Why am I doing this? Because Jesus called me to it. And until he calls me away from it, I'm gonna keep doing it. That's power. This is godly leadership. We need a bunch of these in our city today. We need a bunch of people doing this in Grant's Pass. But there is this tendency, when I studied this actually, <laughs> you know what I felt? I felt like a failure. Because you start reading this and you're like, man, I don't do that. Oh, I didn't do that, right? Maybe you're feeling that right now. And I would say God's word is working then. Because sometimes God's word is to be a mirror for myself and be like, oh, I don't do that. But here's the good news. We serve, we're all under shepherds. No matter how big we might be, it doesn't matter. We're all under shepherds to our chief shepherd. And I know this about Jesus. He loves my children more than I do. He loves this church more than I do. He loves this community more than I do. So what that does is this. It frees me from the pressure of, like, I gotta be perfect. As I, I'll never be perfect. Now I'm gonna keep pursuing and growing and developing. But I need to do verse seven. Cast all my cares on him. Jesus, this church. Jesus, my kids. Jesus, this city. Jesus, this year. Jesus, these elections. Casting all that on him because I'm just the under shepherd. And with the pressure off, you can be like Cliff Young. Just do the shuffle. This is what I'm called to do. I don't have to look like everybody else. I don't have to act like everybody else. I'm free because I'm trusting the chief shepherd. This is why we take communion every single Sunday because it's a reminder. It's not on me. I'm not gonna take the weight of the world on my shoulders. I we take communion, we come to the table because we're reminded he's the chief shepherd and we cast all of our anxieties on him. So grab the elements, we'll take communion together. Jesus, we take and we hold your brokenness. You are the perfect leader. You are our example. But even more than that, you are our savior. That you're saving us from ourselves from our own inability, from like Peter, our fear of people that causes us to deny. You're saving us. And so I pray for every person in here, Lord, as a parent or a grandparent or a worker or a boss, a neighbor, I pray as we partake in you that we would know apart from you, we can do nothing. 
that if we want to lead well, servants, willing, eager for eternal crowns, that the only way that we can do that is by offering our lives a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to you. And so this morning, Lord, we do that. We do that afresh. And we pray that as we offer ourselves to you, you would fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your power. Fill us with your ways and your words. And we could lead in our community in this crisis. Let's take and let's eat together. And Jesus, we hold the cup. The cup of forgiveness. The cup of cleansing. The cup of the kingdom. That it's a appetizer, it's a down payment, it's a taste of the coming feast that we will enjoy in your presence. And I ask as we drink of this cup today, Lord, I pray that you would silence the accusations of our enemy, the roaring lion who wants to tell us that we are failures, that we have denied, to tell us that we're like Peter, to tell us that we cannot be used. I pray that, that this cup this hour, this minute, this moment would silence those lies. And that we would know the truth. That you chose us. That you love us. That there are good works that are being prepared and have been prepared for each of us to walk in that you want to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think for our joy and for your glory. That's the truth. And that we'd walk out of here with selective hearing. The lies are gone. And we hear the truth of where we stand, of whose we are, of what you want to do with us, and that it would be power. So may we drink forgiveness, cleansing, and we drink a cut with our past and know that all things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. That's the life that we live now. And may we lead like you, I ask. So let's drink together. Amen.